kingdom. I'm going to ask you a question before we start. What is the key to the kingdom? What is the key to the kingdom? You're going to find that out under the heading of the counterintuitive kingdom. You're going to hear some things that just don't seem to, to make sense. That's kind of what counterintuitive means. We're going to talk a little bit about talk a little bit about paradox in a moment. But in this passage, this is deep, okay? 22, 21 to 30. Under counterintuitive kingdom. Oh, one final thing. You don't have any pictures today, but we'll have them next week. Last night was softball opening night. And it was, again, the field was packed. The place was there. We had a ceremony. Little Penelope Scacera sang the national anthem. We had the vice mayor and one of the commissioners throwing out the first pitch. This year we did something special. We put the, the initials on the, the players' shirts and the other shirts that others got for Yader. Many of you who knew Yader last year, uh, he died tragically. He was part of the league. Um, he was a tremendous brother and friend of all of us. So we put his initials on, and then we had another opportunity to honor Dr. Ron Kovac in prayer. Uh, he threw out the first pitch the last uh, seven years. So it was really a great evening. And then we had food, and we had fellowship, and, and everybody got a chance to take a swing. It was, it was a lot of fun, and next week the game starts. So every Saturday night at 5 and 6.30, two blocks west, two blocks south. It's a great, great night. But last night was really special, and it meant a lot to many, many people. To, to honor Yader and, and, and his family and to say thank you and obviously for the Kovacs, for Dr. Ron, who has been there from the prior to Dr. Ron, it was Dr. Kennedy. He threw out the first pitch every year, 2002 to 2006, before he passed in seven. And then when we launched here, uh, it was Dr. Kovac. So it's a neat night. But thank you all for your prayers. We'll, we'll bring pictures. They'll be up on the screen for next week. Okay, you ready? Hear now the word of God. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant infallible word. Let's pray. Father, we are here this morning hungry and thirsty for the revelation of God. No one came here interested in listening to the imagination of a man. So may your word thunder forth from this pulpit. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, whether here in this sanctuary or by way of the internet. Make it a word of comfort for those in storm winds and rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unfutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. <clears throat> Three things in the passage. Ready? Number one, there's a principle. Need to understand the principle. Number two, there's a, there's a picture. We're going to go out of the passage and go to John to look at the picture. 
And then finally, number three, there's a promise inside of all of it. Okay? Before we do, I want to just make a point of a sermon last week or the week before, whichever one it was. It, it kind of blurs for me. You know, somebody once said that the, the, the preacher, an old-time preacher, many, 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 many years ago, it's just Sundays come with alarming regularity. And, and they do. And they, they do. So sometimes it blurs. I'm not sure when we did this. But we talked about sovereignty and, and human responsibility. But look in the passage. Just I want to touch this, and then we'll dive in. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. So Jesus knew, Jesus knew something, right? He knew who was going to betray him. The disciples didn't know. The one who was going to betray him did, but the others didn't. He knew. Stay with me. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. There's the key word. <clears throat> Nothing happened to Jesus that wasn't ordained, wasn't predestined, hadn't been decreed, hadn't been determined in the eternal counsel of the triune God. So he says it's been decreed. But, don't miss, this is one of those biblical buts, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. What's, what do we have right there in that passage that we've preached on that the Bible is all about from beginning to end? Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You see it. <clears throat> and somebody says to me, and it has been asked often, Pastor, explain that to me. And I say, are you serious? No one can explain that. Imagine if you had a God that you could fully understand and completely explain. Guess who God would be then? You. All I know is God is divinely sovereign. It, 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 it is what we call must needs the definition of God. If there really is a God, then he must be sovereign over all things or he's no God. It would be Dr. Sproul who would put it this way. If there's one maverick molecule, that means one molecule in the universe that's out of control. If there's one maverick molecule in the universe, then God is not in control of anything, nor can he be trusted for anything. So either there's divine sovereignty, which we believe there has to be, then we get to get to the next part. Is there human responsibility? Jesus just made it clear. But woe to the one who betrays me. Yet God had ordained it from before the foundation of the world. No one can explain it. Reason resists and repels what faith receives. So the intellectual mind says, I, don't, I, I, I am repelled by this. But let's make it clear. You are responsible for the things that you do. We're not robots. Here's a great line that I like to use. You are because of God. Let me say it one more time. You are because of God, but you are where you are because of the choices that you've made in life. Yet God is completely sovereign over all things whatsoever shall come to pass, yet not violating the will of man nor the author of sin. Okay? We could go on and on and on. We preached it time and time again, but it's right there in the passage. So we see that. We have to understand that. He's at the table. The night he's being betrayed, he's right there. So we have to see this. It's been explained this way to me in seminary. There's no better way to look at it. These are two parallel lines that run off into eternity, and they never meet. They never cross. They're parallel. God is sovereign, and we're responsible. So the last thing I can say is, if you don't understand it, get over it. Deal with it. It's, it's not a paradox. It's not a contradiction. It's two truths. Okay? <clears throat> now, just to be clear on a paradox, what is, we're going to look at that in the passage. What is a paradox? There's lots of ways to define it, but the simplest way to me, it, it's contrary to expectation. 
When you're, you're, you're listening to something, you're hearing something, and then you hear something, and you go, oh, I didn't expect that. that, that that's paradoxical. So we're not going to get real deep on this, but you're going to see it in the passage. And, and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to go against the grain of what you would think and what you would expect. And that's exactly what we're going to have to look at because there's two kingdoms in the world, yes? The kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And they're not the same kingdom. They're, they're in conflict. They're, they're different. And so we're going to see. We're going to see the values of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And we're going to see what Jesus is talking about. Okay, you ready? This is called the counterintuitive kingdom. We're going to head out into some deep water. And let our nets down for a catch. Ready? Here's the principle. It's paradoxical, but it's a principle. Okay? Let's set the table. They're sitting at the table, the Lord's table, their last meal together. It's the final Passover, the final divinely ordained Passover. The first institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is talking about his death. And they're disputing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. Is that messed up? So remember what I've told you. When you read the biblical stories, you're to insert yourself in the story. Who are you never? Jesus. So guess who you are? You're messed up. He's telling them he's about to die and they're disputing who's the greatest. That's us. We are so whacked. They're walking with him three years, talking and eating with him. And he's saying, I'm about to die for you. And they're arguing. No, 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 no. I'm he chose me before you. No, I've done ten times more than you. And he's listening to it. They're arguing. And they find out, well, who's the greatest, Jesus. First of all, doesn't it answer itself? How many greatest can there be? So who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus. That should answer it. Should be simple, right? Can't be like five greatest. It's one greatest. Jesus. And the rest? Okay? The great now, here he goes. Now this is where it's not gonna make sense. It's gonna catch you by surprise. The greatest among you should be like the youngest. What? That doesn't make sense. The one who rules like the one who... No. No. All right. Let's unpack youngest. What are they? Besides the fact that they had no value in the ancient world. It's not like today, right? How, how the youngest have really this unimaginable value today, which they always should have had. But you're driving down the road, you get behind one of them SUVs, right, and you see the sticker, my child is on the honor roll over here. My child accomplished this and that. So they're, they're exalted. But back in that day, there was, there was none of that going on, okay? They, they were a burden, if, 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 if anything. And, and they, so he's pointing something out. So here's a couple things on youngest. They were vulnerable. They were weak. They were dependent. That would be the same today. Parents with little children, who's responsible for them? You are. They're vulnerable. They're weak, and they're totally dependent upon you. So Jesus is trying to say something to these grown men that they're missing while they're arguing about who's the greatest. Who can sit at your right hand and who can sit at your left hand? James and John, they were messed up. Now I'm going to give you three things that will tie it all together. Okay? 
They were unaccomplished in life. This is the point that Jesus is making. You can't parade your doing in front of God to broker his favor. So the youngest has accomplished what? Nothing. They're unaccomplished in life. Number two, they're undeserving of authority. You don't give children authority. So Jesus is building his, his, his premise in supporting his principle. Who are the youngest? And here's the best one. And I think this is the deepest. And I think this should speak to every heart as adults. Ready? They are unconcerned about revenge. Now, here's a great illustration of that. Parents with little children or you're older and you had your little children. Okay? Is this not a common occurrence? You're out at the park and all of the kids are there. You had a play date and all the kids are playing. And they're all playing and they're all having a good time and you're over at the table with the adults and over comes running your, your, your little child. Here, here comes little Sylvia and she's got tears and she's crying and I'm so mad. I, 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 I hate Anna. She is so mean to me. I can't believe what she's done. I'm never going to invite her again. She's never coming over again. She's never going to play with my toys. I'm, I'm. You comfort and you send her off. 20 minutes later, She's got Anna in her hand, and Sylvia says, my best friend Anna's with me, and we'd like to have some goldfish, please. Where's the payback and the revenge and the... That's the point. They don't know how not to forgive. That other stuff that we have isn't in them. They go from, I can't stand, you'll never come over, and then we're best friends. We're best friends. We don't do that. Too much flesh. So Jesus is making, they're unaccomplished in life, they're undeserving of authority, and they are unconcerned about, what is it? They have hearts of forgiveness. They understand their dependence upon those who are older and wiser. That's what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples who are thick, thick in the head. You know, thick, thick. They don't get it. You need to be younger. You need to understand. Let the children come. You're missing something here. You're missing something so deep, and it's so simple. Okay, now, now we're going to get to the next level of depth. We're going to go a little deeper with our next, okay? 27. Who is greater? You don't have to answer this because it answers itself. The one at the table or the one who serves? Well, always it's the one at the table, yes? That's the reason why they're called servants. They're serving the one who is greater. So he asked the question, then he goes on, but then he says this, but I, here's the key, this is another great biblical but, but I am among you as one who serves. You see what just happened? And we're going to see a picture in a moment of the greatest act of humility, except for one, and I'll show you the one at the end. But this will be the, the second greatest act of humility, the greatest one until we get to the final one in a moment. So what's going on here? What do we, what do we know about humility in the scriptures? St. Augustine said that <clears throat> almost the whole of the Christian teaching is humility. Calvin said that there is no access to salvation unless all pride is laid aside and true humility is embraced. But you take a guy like David Hume, Scottish philosopher, 1700s, skeptic, historian, unbeliever, humanist, and what does he say? He says, no, 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 no. Humility is not a virtue. It's a vice. Who wants to hang around people who think that they 
are nothing. So he turns the whole thing on its head and says, no, no, no. Humility is not a virtue. It's a vice. And when the kingdom of God showed up in the Greco-Roman world, was humility on the top of the list of virtues for those who were living? No. It was pride. The pride of self. So Jesus is doing something here. And then he's going to demonstrate it in a moment. So let's take a look very briefly at kingdoms in conflict. Ready? The kingdom, and, and I put it in two phrases that I hope are, are easy to me- memorize. They're easy for me, and I try to make it simple because I'm a very simple man. Okay? We, we could have put a list of things. Could have spent a few weeks on it, but I'm just going to give you two lines. In the kingdom of man, success is created at the expense of others. They pay for your success. You use them. You do whatever you need to do. Survival of the fittest, strongest survive. And the kingdom of God is success at the service of others. See the difference? And then you could go on and on and on and bring all sorts of different values to that and virtues to that. But it's real simple. There's, either, there's only two ways to create success in life. At the expense of others or at their service. Which one defines you? Which kingdom do you belong to? Which kingdom are you a citizen in? And that's the key. And that's what Jesus is trying to say to these guys. You don't understand what I've come to do. You just, at, at three years, three years. So now, think about th- these couple paradoxes. Let's just throw them out because they're, they're running in your mind. And you go, I remember this in Scripture. I'm just going to throw a few. They're everywhere. I think I want to write a study on that and t- teach that in the fall. But listen to these. You ready? Just simple. Gaining through giving. Freedom through servitude. Strength through weakness. Living through dying. And in this passage exaltation through humility. Paradoxical. You don't expect that. You mean the more I give away, the richer I become? Yes. Do you understand the kingdom value? What do you mean I have to die to live? You have to die to yourself in order to live for Christ. There's no life in you. You know what Steve Brown would say? Put it this way. God is bringing you to the end of yourself. And I add to that, and the sooner the better. I can't wait to get rid of Tommy Bowling. Because he just keeps messing things up. So God is at work in your heart to change you and to conform you to the image and likeness of Christ. And there's no greater, I'm, I'm convinced, there's no greater value of, of, of greater need in the church than humility. Who's chasing after that? We just entered into the third month of, of the year, right? So we're not that far away from the new year. The new year, sometimes we sit around, right, and we, we set up some goals and some, some, some plans and some desires for the new year, right? And we put our list together. Anybody here have on your list in, in the top five a pursuit of humility? We, we don't even consider it. And yet, what is the greatest thing that Christ teaches us from beginning to end? Humility. And no one's pursuing it. And he's trying to tell them, he says, three years, you st- everything that you've seen and everything that you've heard, you still don't get. So here's what happens. Ready? He's talking. He's teaching. And now he's done talking. Now he's going to show them. You're not hearing me. You're not listening, so I'm going to show you. Okay, you ready? 
Number two, here's the picture. We have to go to John. We have to go to John. Ready? Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, John 13, and that he came from God and he was returning to God. You could stop right there because the next word, so, is too striking. What, is, what, what, what do we read in the passage? He knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going back, and he says all authority. So I have all authority. So, you have to, you don't miss this. I have all authority. I came from God. I'm going to return to God. I'm God. So, because of that, because, so, he got up from the table, took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel. Okay, you got to get the picture. In the ancient world, roads were primarily dirt roads, and so feet got really dirty. They wore sandals, many barefoot. So by the time you got to your location, they were really nasty. The job of the slave in the location in which you arrived was to wash the feet of those who came in. Now, they come into this room. The upper room has already been prepared. They're having the meal, but they're watching. They see something. What do they see? They see a basin. So picture that. You're, you're at the table. You know what should have happened, and you know that it hasn't. There was no slave there. There's a basin, and there's a pitcher of water, and there's a towel. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the meal, you see Jesus get up. Imagine the horror. Now, Peter's going to give us a full expression of the horror in a moment. But Jesus gets up, takes off the outer garment, he grabs a towel, he girds himself, pours the water in the basin, and he starts at the disciples' feet washing them. Do you see the picture? It's almost un it's unimaginable. It's hard to believe. And Peter is horrified. All of them are. He's speaking on behalf of them. But no one has moved. What, what should have happened? When they walked into that room that night, they should have been fighting over the basin. They should have been fighting to be first to get to the basin to wash his feet and the feet of everybody else in the room. But instead they sat and they ate and their Lord said, I've had enough of this. You don't hear me. You're not listening. I'm going to show you again. I've been showing you. I'm going to show you one more time because I'm going to be gone tomorrow. You have to get this because you are not going to be able to expand my kingdom without humility. We will never advance into holiness without humility. Nothing is going to happen in my kingdom if we don't have humility. So now, we go further down in the passage, 1415. Now, that I, he reminds them, don't be confused on who... Now I, your Lord, and your teacher, have washed your feet. You also wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done. They're utterly shamed. So two things. I want to show you two things. Humble service. Then I want to show you a holy symbolism. Okay? Very simply, and then we'll move on. Andreas Kostenberger is a contemporary modern Bible scholar. Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he writes these words. The practice of foot washing 
which has a long Old Testament tradition, was typically performed by slaves. He says typically because you'd wash your own feet. Not everybody had a slave available to do that. But when you went to a location, a slave would be available. And a slave would do this. This was the most humiliating act. The rabbinical writings of that time in the ancient world made it clear that no Jew is ever, ever, not only never to be forced to wash feet, it's never even suggested. It is too humiliating of an act. It is too above and beyond a Jew. And here's the Jewish carpenter, teacher, Lord, washing their smelly, toe-jammed feet. Imagine the toe jam. So Peter knows and he freaks. And he says, he's watching. If you've been to the Christmas special here, you see our Simon Peter, Mac, and he washes the feet. It takes a couple to get to Peter. Peter's not the first. Because Jesus is setting it up. So Peter's watching this happen. He's going, no, Lord, you will never ever wash my feet so now we got to go to what we got to go to a holy symbolism it's not a sacrament but there's symbolism here that we can't miss back to verse 8 i didn't put it on the original portion i'm going to bring it now jesus says to peter okay peter you don't want me to wash you unless i wash you you have no part with me that has nothing to do with feet right you can't miss that you think he's talking about washing feet if i don't wash your feet you have no part in the kingdom. no 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 He's not just giving us a picture of humble service. It's deeper. It's always deeper with Jesus. Don't miss the humble service. But there's holy symbolism here. Leviticus 8. What what does God command Moses to do in Leviticus 8? As he's getting ready to ordain Aaron and his sons into the priesthood. He washes them with water. It is symbolic. It is symbolic. It is a symbolic act of what? Washing away of sin, cleansing from all unrighteousness. It is a picture. It's a picture of something that is about to happen in less than 24 hours. Because he's now going to shed his blood that will truly cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, okay. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Don't miss this. You were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Why is it not a sacrament? Let's just be clear on that. A sacrament is what? Sacrament is an outward and visible sign ordained by Jesus pointing to an inward hopeful spiritual condition. We have two of them. Two of them that point back to circumcision and the Passover in the Old Testament. He changed Passover that night and turned it into the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. We have taken circumcision and we turn that into baptism. Those are sacramental. Those are done for that specific purpose. An outward visible sign pointing to an inward spiritual condition. Nothing magical in the water. Nothing magical in the foot washing. It's not a sacrament. You're not to be running around washing people's feet. If you like to do that, that's good. Some places have instituted that. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the point. You're missing the point if you turn it into a sacrament. That's not what he's doing. He's finally had enough. If I'm Jesus, you know what I'm thinking? 
man, when I come out of that tomb, I'm finding me 12 more. I had enough of this. No matter what I say, that's a joke. He's working on them. He's working on their hearts. He's getting them to a place where they're finally, and they're going to get it. They're going to get it. They're going to get it. And all of them, the church tradition tells us, John's going to die for him. They're going to get it. And that church is going to explode. Because they understood what true humility was. They understood that the last will be first. And then the first will be last. And they understood that if Jesus was their Lord, they would be like their Lord in every way. And they would be so other-oriented that it would be something the world has never seen. That's what humility is. That's what Jesus is teaching. That's what he's showing. That's more needed now in the church than ever before. So how do we understand the promise? This is deep, but it'll be brief. And if you have questions, some people came to the fellowship hall to ask. We can talk. But we ha- you can't, when you preach through a book, you can't neglect passages, right, that are, that are difficult. You can't gloss over it. And you don't have to be in agreement. But we've got to look at the passage. Okay? So here's a promise. Watch. You have heard, you have stood by, my, by me in my trials. 22, 28 to 30. I confer, he's talk, talking to the disciples. Judas is gone. Judas is gone. Matthias will be picked in Acts. I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink where? At my table, in my kingdom. Whose table? Jesus' table. Whose kingdom? Jesus' table. Who, who, who just washed the feet? Jesus. The one who owns the table? The one who rules the kingdom? He just washed their feet. But there's more. And sit on thrones. We like that. But now what? Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What does that mean? I can only touch on these two things, okay? So we're going to be very brief. You've probably heard of both, and if you haven't, we can chat more and you can look on your own. You probably have heard of what's called replacement theology and covenant theology. But you've got to deal with a passage like this, and I'm going to show you something in Revelation. And I'll take you to Romans very briefly. What is replacement theology? It says that the church has replaced Israel, that God has no interest, no plan. Israel has no part in, in, in the kingdom moving forward. Or covenant theology, that the church is the expansion of Israel. If you believe in replacement theology, how do you respond to Luke? You say, well, it's talking about the spiritual Israel. Okay. Revelation 7. Ready? Don't miss this. I heard the number of those who were sealed from the tribes of Israel. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali. Levi, Manasseh, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Why do you think their names specifically? This is, this is, you've, you've got to deal with it. You've got to answer it. There's, there's, and, and then you have to go back to Romans. I can't pull it up. I took a whole class on this one thing, Romans 11.26. Paul says all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? We know they can only be saved by grace through faith. But we know that there's something going on. And you can't just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. Jesus just said, you're going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. We see it in in, in Revelation. we got the 12 tribes laid out, listed out for us. So we know, but where does that leave us? We're not one of the 12. Where does that leave? Well, it doesn't leave us out. We're in. We're going to go back two chapters before. Okay, we're going to go back two chapters. And you're going to see that you're going to do the same thing as the 
the disciples, the apostles, we're going to do the same, only we're going to do it differently. It's going to be, it's going to be a different context. Ready? Revelation 5. Here we go. You, 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 you have been made to be the kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they, that's you, will reign on the, so you will reign. We'll be on thrones. We'll be reigning with Jesus, ruling and reigning. What does all that look like? I don't know what it looks like. I have no idea. And frankly, I really don't care what it looks like. All I care about is being in. That's all I care about. And there are far greater minds and theologians through the history of the Christian church trying to unpack all of these things and figure it all out. I don't have time for that. I'm trying to talk to people about Jesus and getting them saved. That's all I'm here to do. And then bring the word to you every single week. And hopefully it's a word of edification that strengthens you, causes you to ask questions, but help, hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit conforms you more and more to the image and likeness of Christ. Something's going on with Israel. And they're going to rule over those 12 tribes. Remember, there was a reason and that clearly it's not just symbolic that Jesus picked 12 men and then Judas is, is booted and replaced by Matthias over how many tribes in the Old Testament? 12. So there's something going on there. But know this, nothing will happen outside of grace and faith in Jesus, right? Are we clear? There's only one way in. So we know that. There's only one way to get in. There's no special dispensation for getting in apart from Christ. That doesn't exist. We know that. Paul knew that. But Paul says in Romans, all Israel be saved. And you can't, and, and, and so people, and, and uh, I don't have time. So some people, some people, some people, they're not scholars, but some people say, okay, that's all Israel. That's, that's spiritual Israel. Okay, that's great. Back out of Romans eleven twenty six, and keep backing out, and back out into 10, and back out from 10 to 9. He's not talking about spiritual Israel. He's talking about physical Israel. You can't just change it in the middle of a, of, of, of a context in which is being presented to you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Israel. And he says something. we got to deal with it. Okay? So I want to make sure we don't just gloss over something and somebody goes, yeah, you didn't touch on that. Well, I, I'm doing the best I can. All right? How do we close? Ready for the close? This is it. Waited all morning for this. I tell you, it would be worth price of admission. Ready? We're going to go to Napoleon. Remember him? Napoleon Bonaparte, you, you bring him to church? Yeah, I bring him to church. Check out what he's got to say. First of all, let's figure out who he was. He was a French statesman, military leader, arguably by historians, the greatest, perhaps, the greatest general and emperor in the history of the world. Perhaps. That's arguable. But historians say that this guy was a monster. A massive mover and shaker when it came to establishing his kingdom. If you think about the Napoleonic Wars, he ruled over much of in, in entire continental Europe. He was the man. Now, 1770 to 1820-something. What's he say? Ready? And then this is our close. I know men. And I tell you, Jesus Christ was no mere man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires, but it does not exist. Alexander, the great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, we founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. 
Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, I tell you that millions of men would die for him. And I can assure you what Napoleon said. The only men ever died for me are men that were forced to die. They will die by the millions for this guy. Willingly. They have and they will continue. Because he created his kingdom through love. So how do we tie it together? The kingdoms of this world... All of them, every single kingdom that ever existed in this world conquered through force. Only the kingdom of God conquered through faith. Throughout the history of the world, every king conquered and created their kingdom through the bloodshed of others. Do you realize that? Pause on that. Don't, don't miss this. How is a kingdom conquered? How is it created? How is it sustained? It's only one way, on the bloodshed of others. But throughout the history of the entire world, only the king of kings conquered and created his kingdom through the shedding of his own blood. Is there a difference between Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, Napoleon, and every other military leader, every other kingdom leader who has ever lived? You bet there is. This is the only kingdom the world has ever seen that is conquered by faith and the shedding of only the blood of the king. So with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, guess who says come? Christ. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you have never prayed to receive Jesus Christ, this is a moment of salvation. Tomorrow it may be too late. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. This is true. There is more historical evidence for what you believe as a Christian than any other faith the world has ever seen combined. This is true. And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father apart from me. If you've never come to Christ, come now. By grace through faith. Trusting in Christ. As a child trusts their parents. Trust in Christ alone. Put your doing down. You can't do enough good stuff to get in. It doesn't work that way. If we could, he didn't need to come and die. So I told you there was a greater act than washing feet of humility. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Your name. Listen to me. Your name was on his cracked lips as he cried out, my God, my God, why? Why? You're why. I'm why. And everyone who will trust him by grace through faith is why. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, if there's somebody here, if there's somebody by way of the internet, I, Lord, it's my voice, but you're speaking through me. This, listen to me, if you have never prayed to receive Jesus, this is Christ speaking through me. Come to me. Trust in me. Believe I did what I said I did because I did it for you. You don't have to go and try to get cleaned up and come. Come now just as you are. Broken, bloodied, messed up. Come to me and I will give you rest. 
come to Christ. If you've never prayed, it's a simple prayer that the tax collector prayed in the temple. Pray these words. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And salvation is yours today. It's that simple. It's a childlike trust in Christ. Won't you do that? And for the rest, some of you who have walked for 50 years or more, help us to keep walking by faith. The great paradox, walking by faith and not by sight, trusting you, especially when we cannot trace you. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand with us? So, so kind.